ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Big global events keep dominating our news, from shock and awe tactics by Donald Trump towards NATO partners, to Indonesians electing a former military hard man as president. So how should you, how should we read the escalating tensions in different corners of the globe? As one-off concerns or maybe bigger shifts in the world order are underway. And how might our own place on the world stage be affected? On this episode, is chaos the new world order? I'm Hamish McDonald. And I'm Geraldine Doog. Welcome to Global Roaming. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Hamish. And hello to you listening, Global Roamers. It's great to have you with us again. And thanks for all of your company and your feedback and suggestions uh, on the episode so far. We're going to get to some of that towards the end of this week's episode. But I think we need to start with some of the huge news that's been unfolding. Obviously, the Trump comments on NATO, effectively an open invitation to Russia to invade some of America's closest allies, if they're not stumping up with their military spending. And of course, Prabowo in Indonesia, which we discussed at <laughs> length last mm. week with Dewi Fortuna Anwar, it does look like he's won. And by a stonking mm. margin, the predictions weren't for a margin quite that significant. So another busy week, Jerry. It certainly is. I mean, I must say, I think um, that the era of easy peace is over. That's what I'm really taking <laughs> out of, dare I say, of watching all that's underway. I must say, for me, I'm, I'm putting quite a lot of effort into not playing Donald Trump's game. Like, I think that if we give some of his ridiculous and totally inflammatory statements a lot of credit and regard them as sort of almost inevitable examples of what's going to happen in the future, I think we're actually doing his marketing for him. So, I'm really wary of assuming these things are anything more than than a, election stunts, to be candid. But don't you think, as was the case last time when he did win the election, that there is a bit of wishful thinking in America's ally states like Australia, like the United Kingdom, like Europe, mm-hmm. where they don't imagine it's possible actually for America to elect someone with these outlandish views and, and even wilder rhetoric. And so then the election itself takes you by surprise. I mean, I listen almost constantly to, to the BBC and I've really noted actually just a tonal shift in some of the discussions they're having this week since the NATO comments which do seem, I think, to be starting to imagine a world in which Trump is the president of the United States again and how that starts to shift the, the geopolitical picture for for people in Europe. Well, there's no doubt that people are, I mean, I, I think that people are taking it seriously. And of course, one of the impacts has been the much better paying up by most of the NATO members. As They're in actually meeting their, meeting their, their goals of 2% of defence spending, which was the very thing that, of course, Trump did prompt in his only administration thus far. So look, I think, I mean, as you know with me, um, I look at what's happening behind the scenes or try to as much as what's happening on the scene. And I think there's an enormous amount happening underway because of fear of Trump. But then I also think I've listened to quite a lot of American commentators whom I respect saying the fear, the, the MAGA stuff is actually producing a response the media doesn't sufficiently represent as well. Well, that, that was the case in 2016, Indeed right? it was. There was this sort of judgment, I suppose, taken 
and that he was only speaking to a particular cohort of voters, that he was motivating a, a particular base, but then come election time, that wouldn't be uh, enough to, to win the presidency. But it was in 2020, of course. They, uh, they fought back. Exactly. And I, I think the jury's still out on where the majority of the American public stands. I know you mm. look at different polling and mm. maybe Biden's not doing as badly as, as perhaps the news cycle suggests in terms of the broader population. But given the the electoral system there, you've, you've got to get your voters out. Of course, our corner of the planet has changed quite significantly over the past few days because Indonesia has elected a new yes. president. Very clear majority for Prabowo Subianto, former military general under the Sahato New Order regime. Difficult past, as we explored at, at length with Dewi Fortuna Anwar. He's now the man and Jokowi's son, his vice president. So with all of this change ahead in Indonesia, I think that's going to set the stage for an incredibly interesting ASEAN special summit that actually will be held here in Australia in March. Uh, all of the ASEAN leaders plus East Timor coming here, meeting with Anthony Albanese and our leadership on Australian soil. I think that is going to be fascinating to watch. And of course, we'll cover that here on Global Roaming. Now, I'm very excited because... This week, we've got one of my favourite writers, columnists joining us on a visit to Australia, no less. We've all got, I know, Jerry, you have writers you really look out for if you're mm. listening and you're interested in this stuff. I'm sure you do too. Gideon Rackman, for me, is one of those writers. Mm. Gideon Rackman is the Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times and here in Australia for the next month as a guest of the Lowy Institute to sample our debates. Gideon, welcome to Global Roaming. Nice to be here. We are going to get to why you're here in Australia right now, but I think we need to start with Donald Trump and his comments on NATO this week, effectively inviting Russia to invade some of America's closest allies in Europe if they're not spending enough on their own defence capabilities, regardless of whether he wins re-election. What are the implications of him just saying this out, out loud? I think they're pretty profound. I mean, of course, Trump's supporters are dismissing it. So Senator Marco Rubio, for example, said, oh, it's just Trump, you know, what do you expect? He shoots his mouth off. And there is an element of that. But it fits a pattern, which is that Trump has a very transactional view of alliances. He always focuses on, you know, are you paying? It's a bit like you're kind of renting in his building, you know, and uh, you, you're, you're a sort of in default on the rent. And that's how he sees it. He doesn't see it as this kind of almost sacred alliance that America entered to, into after the Second World War, which saw them through the Cold War, guaranteed peace in Europe through some pretty scary times. And so by saying this, he really cast doubt on the fundamental point of NATO, which is that if one member is attacked, all the members come to its defence. So, so how does the world look different if he is re-elected and he pulls the United States out of it? Well, I mean, I think very, very different. But I mean, I think that uh, even if he doesn't pull the United States formally out of NATO, he's now cast a lot of doubt on whether they would actually fight. And it's not just the transactionalism, there's also the fact that if you look back to his previous presidency, he clearly in some ways got on better with Putin than with, say, Angela Merkel. You know, he, he was uh, famously just very disrespectful of Trudeau in Canada. So who he sees as an ally and who he sees as a partner is very unclear. It is interesting, though, how it's becoming clear as well, partly because he is so bombastic, that a lot of people in Europe were not, in effect, paying their way. They were trading on the US to provide their security, weren't they? So despite the transactionalism, I think some people have said, look, 
he actually has a point as well. Sure. No, they're, they're, but this is a point the Americans have been making for a very long time. I mean, Robert Gates, when he was Defence Secretary, made a big speech in Brussels when he was leaving, I think it was in 2013, saying, look, you know, unless you step up to the plate, in the long run, this alliance is going to be unsustainable. And it used to be that it was like 50-50, the Europeans and 50% Americans, and now it's about 70% of NATO military spending is American, and that is unsustainable. But that said... Actually, since the Ukraine war, things have changed. I mean, Germany has had this famous site vendor where they've committed to finally meeting the 2%. Others have really increased defence spending. And the countries that actually are really on the front line, the, the Baltic states, Poland, spend, spend well over 2%. You know, it's more like the sort of Spains and the Italys who are a bit behind. See, I mean, of all the, the threats unfolding, I mean, there are so many, it's sort of awesome to, to list them. Russia, Ukraine, Middle East, um, possibly conflict in the the Asia-Pacific. I wonder which one occupies your mind most clearly or worryingly. As they say, where you stand is where you sit, and I'm sitting in Britain, and so obviously Russia is the threat. And, you know, I found myself thinking something I was like, well, never even bothered thinking about before. Well, you know, at least we're an island and we do have nuclear weapons, so we're a bit less vulnerable than the countries who are further east. What do you think we're going through then? What is this stage? Boy, well, that's a big question, but it's a, it's a very important one. I mean, I think, broadly speaking, we're at a stage where, after the end of the Cold War, the US and its allies were sort of dominated the global system. And there was no real prospect that even those who were not happy with American hegemony were going to challenge it in any military sense. And that's ended. And it began to sort of end around the edges in sort of 2014 when the annexation of Crimea, which we kind of shrugged off a bit. Around that time as well, the Chinese began to build military braces right, right across the South China Sea in a way that America didn't really respond to. But then the big breach comes with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I remember speaking to an American official at the time, and he put it in rather kind of intellectual terms. He said, what this means is that we've lost our monopoly on the use of force around the world, which is an interesting way of putting it. It wasn't very moralistic. He just sort of saw it in that way. But suddenly, I think Russia and China in particular, but also Iran and North Korea maybe, you want to add to that list, are saying, look, the hegemon is no longer is overstretched. It's in turmoil domestically. You have a figure like Trump. And maybe we can challenge this. And I think you've got challenges right across the world. And that is the sort of significance, in a way, of the Russia-China access and this unlimited friendship, which they proclaimed just three weeks before the invasion. The fact that you have Russia challenging the US-based security system in Europe, China challenging it in Asia, and turmoil in the Middle East. And America can't really do it all. There was a really interesting thing I think occurred over the last week, which was a strange collision of those domestic currents unfolding in the United States as well as the international turmoil because you had Tucker Carlson, formerly of Fox News, turning up and interviewing Putin. I know you watched it because you've written about it. What did you make of it? How do you interpret that as a moment? Well, it would have been funny if it wasn't so serious. I mean, it was funny in the sense that they were sort of talking past each other and you saw Carlson thinking, you know, as journalists do, uh, I've got this great scoop and he's going to say all this amazing stuff. And he just goes off into this literally half an hour lecture starting in the year 900 on Russian history. And you could see Carlson thinking, oh my God, you know, the viewers are not going to be sticking with this. And just thinking, you know, how the hell do I interrupt him? All the, how do I get him back on track? Because that was quite funny as a journalist watching this thing just 
go wrong. But, you know, look, it was serious for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, it underlined the fact that there's a significant point, part of the Trump base, and, you know, Carlson really is Trump's premier cheerleader in the media, that is very sympathetic to, to Putin. It's interesting what Carlson's been saying since he came home. He just gave this speech where he said, oh, you know, Moscow is such a wonderful city. It's so much cleaner and more orderly than the United States. So essentially, it's almost like the sort of communists in the 1930s saying, you know, the ideal society is in Moscow. Because you've written, I think, about the fact that that the internal cohesion in a lot of, quotes our societies that we know that we would have been allied with is not what it once was. And you cite this as something that plays its role in the geopolitical mosaic. So what, what are you getting at there? Because that's a very different way of thinking about I think, it. I think it actually could almost be decisive. I mean, and I think if you're Putin, you understand it perhaps better than we do, because, you know, how did the Cold War end? It didn't end with this war that everyone had been preparing for, uh, no climactic tank battle in Europe. It ended because the Soviet system collapsed internally. And, uh, you know, there's a famous line in Putin's memoirs where he says there's a, he was based in East Germany and he calls for instructions. And he says, but Moscow was silent. And Moscow was silent because the system had collapsed. And... So I think Putin and maybe Xi, and you actually see it in the way they write about America in their official media, see their advantage as if we can just play on America's weaknesses, maybe America will collapse internally. Maybe Trump will be a sort of Gorbachev in reverse, a yeah. guy who just says, you know, actually, we're not going to compete anymore. We're not interested in this struggle. And they can win that way. See, uh, see, I wonder what it's like, because we've got these huge elections we've been reporting, you know, sure. global roaming on this year of elections. So I wonder what the message is to those of us internally. How do, we, like, does it make us more afraid? Are we going through something and get to the other side? You know, is it just a, a staged moment, a bit of chaos before something settles? How? Isn't it that you have to vote for a populist so you can <laughs> well, stand up? Or um, a boring centrist, as you say. There is sort of Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the better... I mean, I'm being a boring centrist myself. I'm sort of, when I look at Britain, one of the good things about us is we're going to have an election between two boring centrists, you know, at a time when you have the AFD on the rise in Germany, the French worried about Marine Le Pen surging, the Dutch actually having potentially a, a real far-right populist as their next prime minister, if he can get a coalition together. For the moment, populism sort of, the bubble's been burst in Britain. And I think it's partly because it was associated very clearly with a single project, which was Brexit, which at least is perceived to have failed. If you look at the opinion poll, 70% say didn't didn't work well. So in a way, the way to get through populism, <laughs> but it's a very dangerous way, is to give them their head, let it fail, and then there would be a backlash. But it's also, these things never end. I think Britain's in a relatively okay place politically at the moment, but if you look at opinion polls of young people, the number of people who say, actually, democracy's not working, I might look be prepared to contemplate an undemocratic alternative is very high. That's even in the UK. So in answer to your question of how does it end, I don't know. I mean, you know, you, you can't... <laughs> it's frightening, of, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, you, it could go in, in so many different ways. And it is also the interaction between these domestic and international trends is, is very unpredictable. I'm interested in understanding why you're interested in viewing all of this from this corner of the planet. You've come to Australia for a stint. You, you're, in fact, spending three months in, in the Asia-Pacific yeah. region. 
Does the world and its problems look any different to you from this angle? Well, ask me again in three months' time. But look, I did think when I sort of set off on the plane here, you know, am I making a big mistake in the sense that, you know, what if there's a huge a surge in the war in Ukraine and the Russians are closing in on Kiev and I'm on Bondi Beach, you know, that <laughs> might not be great. Or, But I think that the it's still true that the big story of the century is happening out in Asia Pacific. I mean, it is the rise of China and how it plays out. I think that strategic competition between China and the US, but also China and India, China's influence in Southeast Asia, all of that's important. And actually, I think Australia has become geopolitically quite a significant country because it's America's closest ally in the Indo-Pacific region. Its AUKUS is obviously a big statement by the Americans, as, as well as the Australians and the British, for pushback against China. And then the way in which the US and Australia are working with India and Japan, it's become part of this attempted pushback against China. It's really interesting to hear just the language you're using, even here with us, because there will be quite a lot of Australians listening and saying, oh, look, we mustn't get above ourselves, you know, like, what are we really? And then there's another whole group who've really come to terms with the fact that we're a middle power and, and, and we've got to do that well. I'm just wondering how you're detecting, how do you read the way we're conducting ourselves in foreign policy terms? I think it's it's a very interesting debate happening here because, you know, as I've picked up, AUKUS is not uncontentious. I mean, it, it's true that the two main parties have both come in behind it, and so it's probably pretty solid, but they're interesting, you know, academics and intellectuals, I mean, former prime ministers like Turnbull and Keating who say, you know, actually, this is a mistake. So I don't think you can say this was a obviously the right thing to do. I'm mildly pro-AUKUS, though, because I think that China has a sort of certain sense that it promotes, but I think that it also believes in that this region is inevitably going to come under China's sway and, you know, just get with the program, forget about opposing it. And, you know, not in any cultural sense, I don't, I don't have a problem with, with expanded Chinese influence, but this China, the one that's run by the Communist Party, by a one-party state, and that therefore is very uncomfortable with freedom of speech and all the kinds of democratic values that go with it. I think it's, it's legitimate, in fact, it's important to try to say, actually, you know what, we would prefer that you don't dominate the region while you're organised in this way, and that there's a whole bunch of countries, of which Australia is an important one, that are prepared to stand up for an, a different way of doing things. But there are serious questions that I think you're alluding to about both the viability of AUKUS and the strategic value of it in the longer term, given the way things are unfolding in the, in the conversation that we've just been having. Do you recognise those doubts? Do you see the reasons why there are those in Australia in increasing numbers who say this might not have been such a clever idea? No, I, I, I do recognise the doubts. That's why I sort of say it's, it's an interesting debate because, you know, in a sense, Australia made a very long-term bet on America at a time when America looks less stable and less predictable than for a very long time. And that could come unstuck. Isn't there an argument that actually we... If we are to be this middle power that Geraldine is convinced we are, I'm not sure I'm quite as convinced. Are you not convinced? Well, I think we tend to overstate it a bit. I think I think it's sort of assumed that we are and we operate as that. And yet 
we're going into this US election cycle, totally beholden to the whim of the American public in terms of the future of the security but arrangements every, that we've but got in you place. Know, that's, that's but true. everyone the UK, is. The everyone US, is. So, and, and, yeah. and of Germany, you know, um, being a middle power. You may not be that powerful. But you're <laughs> no. In terms of you reporting back to the Financial Times, yeah. which, of course, is widely read, who are you meeting here? Like, can you tell us? Because you're about to go down to Canberra and meet... The kinds of people you'd expect. Yeah, you know, the the foreign ministries, uh, treasurer, uh, people in the prime minister's office and and academics and, you know, thinkers, those kinds of people, yeah. So this is something that uh, used not to happen in Australia, see? So it's just interesting to think that the Northern yeah. Hemisphere, you know, think tank types are actually coming well, down. Well, no, it is, it is interesting. You know, you know, partly, I mean, I remember when William Hague, who was about 10 years ago, became Foreign Secretary of Britain, he suddenly noticed that no British Foreign Secretary had been to Australia for something like 20 years. It was absolutely crazy. And they set up uh, to try and remedy that a UK-Australia dialogue, uh, which was, you know, included people like me as well as officials and so on. And I was lucky enough to be invited to uh, be part of that. And now I think the money for that's run out. But um, <laughs> but actually, uh, it got my got me interested, got me um, coming here a couple of times for the first time. And, and, and as a result, I've sort of kept, kept the interest and kept coming here. Gideon, we close each episode with a recommendation, something Geraldine or I are reading, watching, listening to. Uh, since you're here with us in Australia, anything you're reading? Well, I'm reading a couple of Australian things, actually, since I'm here. One, a history book, and then one more sort of contemporary. I'm reading The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes, which is, you know, fascinating account of the settlement of the country and the convict history and so on. And he writes beautifully, so it's, it's a great thing to be lugging around Sydney with me. And then more contemporary, a long essay by Hugh White, who is a big critic of AUKUS, this subject we've just been discussing. And it's very interesting to see the argument against AUKUS being made and to think, well, how much of this do I buy and what do I disagree with? Gideon, great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Thank you. And we'll get to our recommendations shortly. Now, Hamish, as he's one of your favourites, how did you how did you find his analysis? Look, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I know we need to have this bigger, broader debate about Australia as a middle power. For me, it's a question of whether we're exercising that middle power status effectively, particularly mm-hmm. in this region. And I'm not sure I'm totally convinced on that. No, I can see that you're not. This is a. I have a belief that, in fact, I think he he confirmed it that we underrate ourselves. You see, and I think there's often quite a lot of, quite frankly, inferiority complex about the way we see our position in the world. And I think we have mattered right back to when we supported the development of Indonesia. I might add, in the 40s, and in fact, Prabowo, the new chief, has particularly cited that. I feel that his observations about internal cohesion in Western societies. Now, that's what I got from listening to him, that they are less stable, our Western societies, than they necessarily used to be. And he thinks that this is becoming quite an important consideration in wider geopolitics. And his illusion... But so if we accept that argument, right, Australia is an example of a country which has relative social cohesion, right? We should be in a strong position to exercise this so-called middle power status, particularly in the region 
uh, in which we exist, right? The Pacific and Southeast Asia. Just last week, we heard a very powerful account of the way in which Australia has not made the argument to our biggest neighbour, Indonesia, on our single most important defence and security strategy being AUKUS. They are not convinced that what we're doing will maintain the status quo in the South China Seas. Mm. So we have not made that argument. We've not convinced them. And I just don't think the comparisons of us with Britain, for example, as a middle power quite stack up either. If you consider the fact that, that the UK is a G7 economy, it's on the Security Council, it's a, a nuclear armed state. And also its diplomatic footprint globally, I think, far outweighs us. Oh, yeah. So so I would just question the degree to which we're effectively exercising this status. Oh, well, you see, I, I take, you know, Penny Wong, she started her stewardship as foreign minister going around and basically going in a very, very well-respected trip around the region, basically saying, look at us internally. We are a model of conglomeration, well-done conglomerative views in this region. Look at us and look at me. And I thought she did that very effectively. But look, I, I really think that the more we can accept that we don't have to be an ex-empire like the UK to consider ourselves middle power status, the better. Mm -hmm. And that we actually present ourselves in such a way not to be bombastic, because that is not clever middle power behaviour, but to actually say, hey, we can be used very much as bridges between nations and do that very effectively. We're good at that. And I actually thought Gideon's allusion to Putin knowing what it's like to have your society collapse underneath you. Just reminded me of the great W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet's line, you know, things are falling apart. They really can, and that can predispose you to extreme danger. I don't think we're there. I think we're anything but. But actually, it's a plus for us that we could parlay this much better to have better debates than we currently do. Now I'm confused about whether you're actually an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I don't tilt at windmills, Hamish. <laughs> I would say uh, to those of you that have written in, thank you very much for doing so. We really welcome the suggestions and feedback, particularly for topics and episodes. Jerry, I don't know whether you've read through them all, but uh, suggestions very on Turkey. Very good suggestions. Uh, Hong Kong, climate change is a broader geopolitical and security issue. I think we will get to that at some point. But also, and I reckon this is urgent for us to do, a suggestion to explore what a possible future Palestinian state or two-state solution might look like in practice. And I know we've already started tossing around some ideas about who we might talk to on that. So thank you for all of those suggestions so far. Okay, time now for something that I'm getting very good feedback on, our recommendations. What are you going to suggest, Amy? I'm going to recommend a book by Richard Lloyd Parry, another favourite journalist of mine. He was based in Southeast Asia, now North Asia. But this is a book from some years ago called In the Time of Madness. It's one of my favourite books about Indonesia, and it addresses that time at the end of the Sahara regime, the, the New Order period, all of the violence that occurred in different places in Sulawesi, which you kind of loosely referenced mm-hmm. last week. Also East Timor. He's a brilliant writer. He sort of faced his own personal crisis within that time, covering it as a journalist, gifted writer. And uh, if you're thinking about Indonesia, our big neighbour, the changes afoot, and of course, Prabowo as president, I'd highly recommend In the Time of Madness. Well, look, I'm actually going to grab two. I'm going to be naughty and grab two. Uh, There was a very good reposted interview by Ben Bland in the Financial Times. He's actually now with the Institute of Strategic Studies about an interview he did in 2013 with Prabowo, a lunch. We've put it in our show notes. It's very, very 
very interesting piece on Prabowo, who was standing, was another one of his tilts at the presidency, and how he saw himself. He also felt he was the fall guy in the wake of those 1998 allegations about human rights abuses. So I really think that is worth it. May I also mention, and I won't necessarily make a habit of recommending ABC work (laughs) unless I think it really deserves it, Nemesis, which uh, has been a big ABC production in the last few weeks, looking at the coalition governments and prime ministers of the last 10 years. The last episode in particular, part three, was just one of the best produced Australian docos about our culture, much more than just about politics, that I've seen. And it covers, among other things, some of the decision-making around AUKUS. Yeah, I I enjoyed the AUKUS stuff. I thought that was actually quite revealing. So, yeah, agree. Worth a watch. Excellent. That's almost all we've got time for. Can I I have a small apology? Because... (laughs) Several of our listeners said, why did you chip away at Hamish for showing that he had some facility in foreign languages? Look, it was envy, listeners. It was envy. That's what it was. Uh, Thank you to those of you that wrote in (laughs) with support. I appreciate it. You've got no idea what it's like working here. Uh, Before we go, the email address, global.roaming at abc.net.au. You can find us on the ABC Listen app as well as other platforms. If you are listening elsewhere, please give us a like, a star rating, leave a comment or review. We really appreciate that. Bye-bye, Hamish. Goodbye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.